Amen. Well, it's good to be with you today on my favorite holiday, by the way. I mean, nothing against Christmas, Easter, Thanksgiving, Valentine's Day, but there's nothing quite like the Super Bowl Sunday to be a special day. Um, Years ago, when I used to lead the hymns at Costa Mesa during the 80s, and one time we just happened to sing on Super Bowl Sunday, we happened to sing the song, This Is My Father's World. And so as I was leading it, it hit me, there's a line in the song that says, in the rustling grass, I hear him pass. He speaks to me everywhere. So I made a wisecrack about it. And then after that, for like the next four or five years, when Chuck was picking the hymns, we'd be talking and I'd go, how about this is my father's world? And he didn't connect, he would never go for a joke like that, but he would like, oh yeah, that, cause that song works with any scripture. So I, there were a few of my friends who knew that I was doing that. And, and I'd look out there when we came to that line in the rustling grass, I hear him pass. They would just be dying laughing. But eventually I remember the dark, one of the dark days of my life when I go, how about, Chuck, how about this is my father's world? He looks at me, he goes, I get it. (laughs) But it it was a good song. Um, But Super Bowl Sunday is an opportunity to, one one of the things that I really do like is you go watch the Super Bowl and inevitably somebody in the crowd is going to, usually in the end zone, will hold up a big sign that says John 3.16. Now that goes back to, there was a guy named Roland Stewart who used to go to the Super Bowl, go to all football games on TV, wear a rainbow wig and hold up a huge sign that said John 3.16. And it's amazing how many people, and now Roland Stewart's in in prison uh, for kidnapping and and terrorist threats, but um, you know, praise the Lord. I'm I'm sure he has a prison ministry, but you know, one of the reasons why John 3.16 is the most looked up scripture on the internet, it's number one by far, it's a great verse, but it's also looked up because people are watching a football game and they're like, John 3.16, what is that? So they pull out their phone and go, what does John 3.16 mean? And they get this verse, John 3.16. Now we are in a series called Verses for Life and we're looking at each week picking one of the important verses of scripture. And so I didn't actually plan, oh, John 3.16 would be a good Super Bowl Sunday verse, but, but it just happened as I was reading it. I, oh, this does actually work for Super Bowl Sunday, but John 3.16 is one of the first verses that people tend to learn when they become Christians. We teach little kids, you talk to any little kid who goes to church for very long, and they can usually tell you, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. And so that verse, we're used to it. And it seems like a very simple verse, but I think it's way more powerful and profound than we sometimes realize. There's so much in that little verse. Now, to get the context of it, Jesus was having a conversation with a Jewish religious teacher, Nicodemus, who was 
one of the Jewish leaders, and he was a teacher of Israel. He came and he wanted to have a conversation with Jesus to find out what else he could learn to add to what he already knew. He, he knew that he was a pretty righteous guy, but he was like wanting to pick up a few tips from this new preacher that was getting so much attention and performing miracles and things like that. But Nicodemus didn't want to be seen with Jesus because he was a Pharisee and that would be really embarrassing because they were threatened by him. So he came secretly at night in John 3. And it says he came to Jesus by night and he began to question him and go, what's going on? And John chapter 3 is collectively some of the most profound scriptural truth that we have, period. One of the, some of the, I mean, it's where Jesus explains to him, you need to be born again. And he's like, what is that? How can I, I don't think my mom would go for that. And he's like, no, <laughs> you need to start over. You need to forget what you know and begin fresh. And so, but I always think it's interesting that if you take the most important things that Jesus said, a lot of them are found in the conversation that he had by night with Nicodemus and the conversation that he had with the woman at the well, you know, you drink, drink of this water, you're going to thirst again. Whoever drinks of what I have, you'll have rivers of living water flowing to eternal life and all that. Um, two individual conversations, private conversations, that somehow what he said and the conversation was there was carried on. I think that between the conversation with Nicodemus and the conversation with the woman at the well, an audience of one both times, there was more profound truth than there was in the biggest sermons that he preached than the Sermon on the Mount or the Olivet Discourse. I mean, this is amazing stuff. So as he's having this conversation with Nicodemus, he's coming down toward the end of it as we get to John 3, 16. And, and John 15 ends up being kind of reiterated in verse 16. So, you know, uh, but John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him won't perish, but will have everlasting life. Now, again, there are, it's so jammed full of truth that it's amazing to me as I've reflected on and meditate on the scripture. And so I'm including it. I couldn't not include it as one of the verses for life because I think it's one of the greatest verses in the entire Bible that Jesus is here privately at night sharing with a Jewish religious teacher. Now, one of the reasons why this verse is looked up on the internet a lot is certainly because of football games. But another reason is because people who don't like Christianity, people who want to argue that, oh, Christianity is false, the Bible's full of contradictions, they also bring up a lot. The Bible contradicts itself because John 3.16 says God loves the world. But in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, John, the same author of the Gospel of John, says don't love the world or things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father isn't in him. So they go, it's a blatant contradiction. 
You're saying that God loves the world, but you're saying that loving the world means that you're in fact not related to God at all. And you know, which is it? Now, I've heard some pastors address it. I've actually heard some pastors say, it's a different word for world. One refers to the people and the other refers to the system. But that's not true, it's the same word. It's the word cosmos in the Greek, which the cosmos doesn't just refer to people, it includes people in the world, but it's a powerful statement when you say that God loves the cosmos. We use the term cosmology to refer to the study of everything that exists. The cosmos, the world, refers to every person, every animal, every, every item in, you know, microbiology to astronomy to the, the circles of, you know, the water cycle and, and everything that exists in this entire system, God loves it, which shouldn't surprise us because when he created everything that he created, when he created the cosmos, he looked at it and he said it was good. So he certainly loves more than just people. He loves the entire picture. Now, but then why is it so bad for people to love the world according to 1 John 2.15? And the answer is pretty, now also I should say, for God so loved the world. When we listen to, when we hear God so loved the world, we think it means God loved the world so much. But it's actually not, the word that's translated so there, the word autos, it's actually a word that means God loved the world like this. He loved the world in this way. It's pointing at what he did to show the nature of his love for the world. Now in 1 John chapter 2, when it talks about loving the world, if you love the world, love of the Father isn't in you. Then it goes on to say, everything that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life are not of God, but of this world. So how can God agape the cosmos, and how can we agape the cosmos? And in one case, it's something glorious that we celebrate, and in the other case, it's something that can condemn you. Again, it comes down to that word, God loved the world like this. God loved the world like so. God's love for the world was a love that gave. He loved the world, so he gave. So the love for the world that's good is, I see the cosmos, I love it, and therefore I want to contribute to what it is, to its quality, to its benefits. On the other hand, 1 John 2, is talking about a love that says, I love the world because of what I can get out of it. Now, this is a really important distinction because it's true in every area of our lives. You may fall in love with a person. Are you loving that person because of what you want to contribute to them, what you want to give to them, or are you loving them for what you can receive? Now, it's not always cut and dried, 100%. Sometimes you give and give, and then you're like, you're fed up because you haven't received anything. But the highest form of love is a love like God has that says, I am giving everything to you because I love you that much. If you 
give a gift to someone because you want them to love that gift and think you're a wonderful person, that's the second kind of love. That's not the kind of love that allows somebody to do a gift anonymously even, having thinking, this is so cool, because I'm blessing them and they don't even know who's blessing them. That's the kind of love that John 3.16 is talking about, that it is, I love you enough that I want to give to you. I want to make a contribution to your life. And every one of us has choices to make. And the truth is, pretty much everyone loves the world one way or another. Everyone loves the cosmos. Everyone loves the system. Now, you might go, well, there are some people who, they don't even want to live, they take their own life. Would you say they love the world? Yeah, they love the world for what they can get and they're not getting what they want out of it and they love it so much that they want to leave it, that they take it away in the heat of their passion. But, you know, everyone loves the world. I mean, how can you not? But you have to look at, like, you can say, you know, that people who, uh, there are some people who are dog lovers. I mean, a lot of people who, and some, some of you, are huge dog lovers. And I, that's one of, I personally love dogs. I love them too much to have them because they don't live long enough. But, you know, you can love a dog. But I suppose somebody who raises dogs to do dog fighting, in some way they love dogs because they love the competition. They love for their dog to eat enough, kill another dog. They, they like their dog to protect them to be, you know, people who have a guard dog because he's just here to kill anybody who gets near me. That's a different kind of love than saying, I love dogs because I want to help them. I want to contribute to them. And everything is that way. If you, like, you can be a sports fan. And if you love your team until they lose and then you hate them, what kind of love was that? It's a love that says, I want to love these people as long as they give me what I want. And so here in John 3.16, we're confronted with God loved the world so he gave. And we are told in 1 John 2, don't love the world with the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Don't love selfishly, love selflessly. Love with a desire to help. And who could argue... If you wonder what's the picture of God's love, herein is love, John said, that Jesus came and died for us, that God gave us that gift. So he says, he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Now, we brush through that without really thinking about it. There are a lot of people who believe um, a lot of false religions and other people who are just misled who believe that if Jesus is the only begotten son of God, somehow it must mean that God had a baby because that's what we think of begotten. That therefore, and sometimes they'll think, you know, God and the Holy Spirit had a baby and it was Jesus or whatever. The Bible teaches clearly that isn't the case. Here in John Two chapters before in chapter one, he talks about Jesus and says, in the beginning, 
was the Word, the Logos. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. All things were made by him. Without him was not anything made that was made. And then a little later in the chapter, he says, he says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So clearly, Jesus was in existence long before he was born. Now, I, I absolutely believe in the Trinity, that God is one God, eternally existent in three distinct persons. I don't understand it. I just believe what the Bible says. If I really understood God perfectly, I'd really wonder if he's so simple that I could just understand him. Like, I would love to be able to say, yep, the Trinity is like water, ice, and steam. No, it's not. Because they are eternally existent and they can all be, it's not like Clark Kent and Superman. They can, at Jesus' baptism, Jesus is being baptized, the Holy Spirit's coming on him like a dove and the Father speaking from heaven. So it's way more profound than what we realize. But he, why is he called, you can understand why he's called the son, because he was born. Um, and he's the only one from the Godhead who was ever born. But that word begotten, it's a word that refers to the fact that someone is, in the core of the word, is the word from which we get genetics. It's like his, his monogenes in the Greek. It's like only there's one of them, and it's his genetic connected person. See, when we talk about a begotten, the only way we can understand that is that my wife and I had two children, so we begot them. So they are composed of a combination of, you know, my wife's wonderful genetics and my damaged genetics. And so there they are. So they are begotten. Um, that's something that we understand. But what makes them begotten isn't just their origin. What makes them begotten is that I look at my boys and I am connected to them in the deepest form. And so what he's saying about Jesus is that he is the, of the genetics of the father. Now, Jesus also had the genetics of Mary. Mary had, sorry, Catholics, Mary had other kids later. The father, God, father, son is more metaphorical than anything when it comes to their description. But, but the truth is, Jesus is the only literal genetic relative. Now, all of us can become children of God, but he, it refers to us as being adopted. It doesn't say that Jesus was adopted. It says he was genetically connected. He, that's why he could say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So God gave, how precious could that be? You have one relative, now, for a lot of us, we're like, relatives, I could take them or leave them. Because usually we have an assortment. We have some relatives that are fine. We have other relatives that are like, you know, we'll, we'll let them come to our house on holidays and bring a casserole, but we're not going to eat it. You know, it's like, <laughs> but, but 
one relative, literally, genetically, and they have been connected for all of eternity, and now God loves the cosmos so much that the only way to rescue the cosmos is to give his most precious possession, more precious than the world in which he created. And this would be a good time for me to break into this is my father's world in the rustling grass I hear him pass, but I'm not going to do that. But his only relative, literal, literal relative, because they're one. And so, you know, he had to, Jesus had to let go of the rights to being the, the genetic relative of God in order for him to become a human. But he was still God, but then he was also human. So now you're talking about the kind of love that says, I love you so much that I am giving the most precious thing from me to you. And again, it's like, and the Bible teaches us, Jesus didn't just come for people. He came to redeem all of creation to himself. You can't really think that you understand John 3.16 unless you are able to look at the whole system, the whole cosmos, everything collectively and go, everywhere I look, I see this is amazing. This is really beautiful. This is something that is, is really special. When, and, and that explains why, you know, really, there's no reason for me to love sunsets from a selfish perspective. You know, a lot of times we get sunsets in our backyard across a little canyon that's there, and I'll take pictures of it. But I don't like post them on the internet. Oh, look at my, I'm bragging about my sunset. No, I just take it because I love it. I'm not trying to get any, I'm not trying to enter it in a contest and win an award. I just really love a sunset. And you know what? A sunset doesn't do anything for me. There's nothing in it for me. I just happen to love the way that God creates beauty. And I love a rainbow for the same reason. I look at a rainbow and I'm like, this is amazing. But it's a part of the cosmos. I love studying science and history and philosophy and every field that there is, I have a thirst to learn more, even though at my age I've forgotten more than I've ever learned. That's why I have to keep learning. But, but you know, it's like loving the world, but I don't love the world so that it will help me. Because most of the great things about the, world, the cosmos, they don't really do much for me personally. I, I would be much smarter to study economics to try to make better investments than to study science and to understand the intricacies of creation. But I love the system. I love the world. Now, a lot of times we say that the world was damaged and what you see is the world in a fallen state um, because, you know, of... Adam and Eve sinning, and humans received a sin nature from that. I'm not quarreling with that. The Bible teaches that through one man's sin entered into humanity. But here's something to think about. 
When God created the world and he said it was good and he put Adam and Eve in the garden, why did he put them in the garden? Why didn't he just put them and let them go anywhere? Because the truth is, and they found out, their judgment for sin was to be thrown out of that place of blessing out into the rest of the cosmos, which was already damaged. Maybe it was damaged because it hadn't had a chance to develop. Maybe it was damaged when Satan was cast out of heaven, which apparently happened before this time. So the Bible refers to the angels watching creation happening. So I don't know, but I think a lot of times if you ask yourself, what was special about the Garden of Eden? You realize that that was just a, a tiny little corner of the cosmology. But the cosmology is certainly damaged in untold ways. It's not ideal. It's not perfect. So how can God love the cosmology? Because he looks at the damage and he says, I want to allow this world. And you read your Bible and you get all the way to the end of it. Spoiler alert, he makes it all new and beautiful and amazing. He doesn't just redeem people. He doesn't just go like, I'm so glad that I'm going to rescue people. But he rescues the entire cosmological system. You know, the, the, the cosmos, the cosmology, everything that there is. He, he comes to and desires to redeem that. So if he has that love and his love looks like giving, we need to examine ourselves and say, so what's my love look like? What does my, look like, what does my love look like even for my family? What does my lo love look like for my church? I mean, this is something that I see sometimes. People go, oh, I love your church, Dave. I love Pacific Hills. I love listening to you on the radio. And I'm like, cool, that's great. But what if one time you don't get what you want from me? What if I offend you one time? Now do you love me? No, you're just loving me because of what you get from me. I had a, we had our men's breakfast the other day and a guy just started, before I even spoke, a guy started just going off on me because he thought I should be more political. And he thought that the reason I'm not political is I'm so afraid of offending liberals and progressives. I'm like, are you kidding me? I, I offend everyone <laughs> equally. <laughs> but, but that's the idea. He, he ended up stomping out, didn't even finish his breakfast or hear me speak, which is a good thing because I was speaking on we're citizens of heaven. But, yeah, in Philippians. But so how do I love my family? Do I love them as long as they give me what I want? How do I love my church? How do I love my country? Do I love my country because it gives me what I want? Or do I love my country because I have a selfless desire to see what can I do to make a difference in some way and to make this a better place in which to live? So all of those things are wrapped up in what does it mean to see God's love rescuing the cosmology? Now, so right away we have to go, is my love this or is it this? Makes a real distinction. I think for Nicodemus, you know, he would have said that he loved the law, that he loved Judaism. 
that he loved Israel. But would a Pharisee say, I love the cosmos with agape love? No, he wouldn't have. He could have easily said, and he would have been fine with Jesus saying, God so loved his chosen people. And by the way, this is why I reject the doctrines of Calvinism that say that God only loves those who are chosen. The other ones, he he just wants to destroy them just for his own good. It's like, no, he loves the whole universe. He loves everyone. If you don't understand that, you don't understand God. He is the God who doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants everyone to repent. So sorry if you think that that's, oh, narrow, you know, too broad-minded. Sorry if you think I'm some kind of a liberal because I believe that God loves everyone like he says he does, but he loves so much that he gave. And it's a selfless love. But the offer is that whoever, whoever will trust in him, the word believe means trust. And by the way, it's in the present tense in Greek. In Greek, the present tense refers to continuous action. So he's not talking about one time you decided to pray the sinner's prayer and now you believe in him. No, it's whoever is believing continuously in him. And he says, if you do that, you won't perish, but you will have, and again, it's in the present tense, you will continuously have this ionis, this, this life that is completely, you know, perpetuates throughout beyond time. It's like, he's not talking about heaven specifically. He's not talking that someday, if you hang in there long enough, you will get to go to heaven. He's saying something much more powerful and much more profound. If you believe now, you can be alive now. You can have that touch with eternity now. But what if you don't? He says, he, he doesn't want you to perish. Now, we, a lot of times, you know, nobody really likes talking about hell that much. And there's not a ton of things in the scriptures about hell, but there are various scriptures that talk about it. But different people have different perspectives. There are some people nowadays, a lot of them, who are universalists. They believe that eventually they take a verse like, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So they believe that everyone is going to get saved someday. Um, and that's really a sweet sentiment. Frankly, I'd love it if I could believe that. But there's too many scriptures that contradict it. I'm not comfortable believing something that the scriptures clearly say isn't the case. So then it brings to, well, how fair is it? If somebody, say, lives 40, 50 years, 20 years, and they're just living in sin. So now they're going to go burn in hell forever and ever and ever. How could a righteous God condemn people to an eternity of burning in hell? And so they go, I can see, I mean, certainly I could see Hitler might need to burn for, 100 years or whatever, but, you know, maybe Manson, some people like that. 
But for most people, it seems kind of extreme. Now, so then there are people who have the doctrine of annihilation. John 3.16 is one of the verses they use to support this. That's the idea that you go to a place of judgment, but then you will ultimately be burned up. So it's only going to hurt for a little bit. But the problem is, and I like that idea too, except the Bible contradicts it too much. It talks about being there forever and ever, day and night, where the worm dieth not, and so on. So I'm like, well, how does this make sense? Well, I think the reason why it says perish is not because there's going to be a dead end. He's actually, he's talking about where you are in the present. And when he says, should not perish, that verb for perish is in the Greek, it's in the middle voice. Sorry if this bores you, but it's really important. As much as present tense being continuous action, the voice, we don't use it a lot in English, but if I say, I hit the boy, that's the active voice. I did the action to somebody else. Or I was hit by the boy, that's the passive voice. But in the Greek, they have a middle voice that means that you're doing the action, but you're also connected with the action and you're, and you're a part of it. It's like you're giving and receiving the action. Like we have, if I say, I wash my hands, is that passive or active? It's kind of both. I'm doing the washing, but my hands are being washed. So that's what the Greek uses with the middle voice. So why I'm saying that to you is because the word perish in the Greek, it's aorist, it's talking about a point of action, but it's in the middle voice. He's basically, it would be faithful to translate this so that whoever believes in him would not destroy themselves, but that they would continuously have everlasting life. They would live forever past the end of time. And isn't that true? I mean, isn't the truth that as much as other people may damage us, we damage ourselves that much more? We damage other people? Certainly, if we fall into the trap of loving the world for what we can get out of it, we're going to do a lot of damage, and it's ultimately self-destructive. Now, ever since Genesis 3, at the very least, when Adam and Eve chose to go against God because of selfishness, because, ooh, that looks like it would taste good. Ooh, that's going to make me wise. That's going to make me like God. So out of that selfishness, oh, I love fruit, and you eat it. And the damage that comes, it's like you, God didn't, you know, cause them to have to go live somewhere else where they had to work by the sweat of their brow and it was going to hurt to have babies and all that that you see in Genesis 3. They did it to themselves. They didn't have to do that. Adam and Eve didn't have to. And the truth is, the greatest pain that you will ever endure. And believe me, there is some pain that you've endured in your life that is horrible and no one should ever endure something like that. But the pain that's going to do you the most damage is the pain that you do to yourself are going to be those choices that you make 
that deliberately cause you to deteriorate. And I hate to be the one to break it to you, but we are all deteriorating in this life. So if we don't have something that goes beyond this life, this is what it is, this is all it is. I mean, at least since the fall, at least since Genesis 3, there's been something called the second law of thermodynamics or the law of entropy. And it's a law in science that says everything is moving from a greater state of order to a greater state of disorder. In other words, everything is falling apart. Everything is winding down. If you don't believe, if you don't understand the law of entropy, second law of thermodynamics, just go look at your yearbook picture and then look in the mirror. It's like, man, it's true. I'm not who I used to be. That's the nature of this life. So, but the truth is, the reason things deteriorate is because we destroy ourselves. I have people who hate me sometimes, believe it or not. <laughs> um, and I'm one of them. Sometimes I hate me. But the truth is, I hurt myself by self-destructive decisions that I make. I do much more damage to myself than anyone else has ever done to me. And that's the issue of John 3.16. People are destroying themselves. They're doing it to themselves. It's why after, in the next couple of verses, he says, God didn't come into the world to condemn the world. He came to save the world. If you believe, you're not condemned. And if you don't believe, you know, you've already condemned yourself because of your lack of belief. So he's saying, here's the thing. God created this beautiful system and he still loves it. But he looks at people who were given that amazing gift of choice, the power of responsibility, the ability to respond. And what are we doing to ourselves? What are we doing to each other? We are looking for what we can get. And as we love for what we can get, we become victims of our own rebellion ultimately. And so, as Jesus is explaining to Nicodemus, look, understand this. There's a love that gives completely. His love is manifested by him giving the closest one to him, the one with whom he shares deity, the one who has always been with him even before any of this started. But what he wants to do is to give you life that starts now, that ends forever. But ultimately, what he hopes to do is to rescue you from destroying yourself. And that's John 3.16. That we ultimately, every one of us, two basic questions. How are you going to love the world? By the way, there, you know, people go, oh no, there are people who don't love the world. No, everyone loves it. They might get mad at it because it doesn't give them what they want, but you can't help but love the cosmos. But what you can help is how do you love the world? How do you love creation? How do you love logic and reason and, and history and science and, and beauty and art and everything else? How do you love it? Do you love it in that you're hoping to get something from it? 
or do you love it because you're thinking you might be able to be involved in the creation process? We are, as people, are created to be creative. It's one of the reasons why Jesus told people, you're not even going to have a clue about the kingdom of God until you become like a child. Every child is creative by nature. But we end up going, you know, you're never going to, how many, how many kids have been told, I know you love art, but it won't pay the bills. I know you love music, but you're just not good enough to really make it. It's such a long shot. I know you love sports, but it's never going to pay off. And we gradually squeeze the, the essence of life out of people by making them reduce everything to what is in it for me. Now, it's not bad to say, if you love art, you might want to also have a side hustle actually working. But when we squeeze that away from people, when we tell them that you don't need to study history, you can't open up a little history shop and make a living at it. No, it's, it's so much more than that. And God loves the cosmos but he loves it in a way that he gave everything to redeem it. He gave everything for it. Now, are we going to love it because of what we can get out of it? Or are we going to love it because of what we can provide, what we can offer? And those are the questions that we all have to ask. But in, in saying that, then we have to say, am I truly alive? Am I really living or am I choking the life out of myself? Am I destroying myself? Have I become my own worst enemy? Well, when God sees you doing that, his response is, I don't want you to kill yourself. I don't want you to, to drive yourself to a horrible end. What I want you to do is to live starting now and to live forever. Now, how does that tell us about hell? I don't know. I mean, personally, there are verses that say it goes on forever. It's not going to be like Dante's Inferno. Most of our ideas about hell come from, and I believe in hell, but Dante's Inferno, there's this place with all these flames and screaming and the devil with a pitchfork and all that. Hell is made for the devil and his angels. So one thing we know is Hell is designed to torture the devil and his angels. So if you want to go there, you can, but it can't be flames and things like that because it's like that wouldn't hurt a spirit being. They would be like, hey, cool, working on my tan. No, they, but ideas, truth, hell may just be a place where, and remember in the end, it's true, every knee will bow. Everyone ultimately admits who Jesus is, but some people will have made the fatal mistake of rejecting him while they still had an opportunity to receive a gift of life. And so, you know, you, you don't want to go there. Why in the world do you want to destroy yourself? And, you know, if you reject Jesus and then you go to hell and then you're like, oh, Dave, it is really like flames, or I don't care. I don't care about hell. I'm not going there. I may never, even in heaven, the last thing I'm going to do is go, so Jesus, what's hell really like? 
I don't know, but I'll tell you this. I see people putting themselves through hell all the time. And I have found in life, we are almost always our own worst enemy. He doesn't want you to destroy yourself. And that's why he offers eternal life. If you're here, you're listening or watching online, and you've never come to the point, maybe you're like you know, Nicodemus where you're like, yeah, I got the theology down. I got, I'm a good person. I'm, and you've never personally confronted the fact that you have a personal decision to receive that gift of eternal life that starts now and will go on into eternity. Stop destroying yourself. Allow yourself to turn yourself in to him and say, I'm sick of doing damage to myself. That's why you came. You're right. I'm already condemned. I'm messing myself up. So God, I need your salvation. I need your help. I need you to rescue me. And if you've never made that decision, I don't care if you've been you know, a Christian for, for the, your whole life. If you've never made a decision to receive life and to turn away from your self-destructive and selfish behavior, today is the day to do just that. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this amazing scripture, for this truth. Thank you that you had so much love that you gave up, you let go of something more valuable than anything we could ever imagine having. I mean, we wouldn't sacrifice one of our children like Abraham was asked to do with Isaac before you rescued him. But to have our only, to have one relative and give that one for a lost, damaged, dying, self-destructive world. Your love is amazing. Lord, too often we look at your world for what we can get. We even look at the church and we look at you for what you can give us. We want your love that selfless love that just wants to contribute to the right side of the equation of of the cosmos to make the universe a little bit better place. Lord, you showed us how to do that. Help us to live that way, to stop destroying ourselves and to receive the gift of forgiveness, the gift of grace, the gift of eternal life that you offer that we could have eternal life now. If we reject that, we know it's not because you didn't choose us. It's because we would rather destroy ourselves than to humble ourselves. I pray that if there's anyone who's wrestling with that decision, Lord, you would just push them over the edge and let them know, no, this is, this is so real. Your love is so real. I pray that everything they see in this world would remind them of how much you love us. The beauty and the wonder of creation, that it would speak to them as your scriptures tell us that the heavens declare the glory of God, the firmament shows your handiwork. So Lord, make yourself clearly known 
We bow to you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.